Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 as we pick up our study where we left off? And I want to begin, as always, by reading this chapter together. And it's a challenging chapter. It's a challenging chapter for a lot of reasons. But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as I begin reading it and encourage you to follow along? If standing is uncomfortable, then please don't feel any pressure to do so. But it begins in verse 1, chapter 9. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger." Just as written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for, we, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth and with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him shall never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, I ask as we look to your word that your Holy Spirit would help us. This is a tough chapter. It's, uh, and Lord, I just pray that you would help me to to explain it simply and clearly, but also, Lord, truthfully and powerfully. For God, we want your word to have its way in our lives. 
but we need to understand what that is. So we pray for your help in that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 have actually proven to be some of the most challenging in the Bible. In fact, we, it's pretty obvious that Paul moves through a transition. He ended chapter 8 by talking about the amazing love that God has for us, that how that there's nothing that can remove that love, that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And on and on he went with these positive affirmations of God's not only affection for us, but his purpose and plan for our life. And then when we get into chapter 9, suddenly he really kind of shifts gears and he talks about God's relationship with the Jews. In a sense, he's kind of answering a question. If all those things are true about God, his covenants and his promises, then how do you explain the Jews' avid rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting because as he offers that explanation, unless you have a fairly sophisticated understanding of the Old Testament, you can become easily confused by what we just read. In fact, what really confuses it is a word that he introduced in chapter 8, the word predestined. He, he said there in, in, in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. But predestined for what? predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is an important distinction to make because, you know, Peter in his second letter to the church made this comment about Paul's letters. He said, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant, by ignorant he means uneducated or uninformed, not ignoramuses or not stupid people, but people who are uninformed and unstable in their faith they tend to distort those things. In other words, the, the idea to wrestle or to twist them in a way that conforms to what we want them to say, not what they actually say. You know, we have that saying sometimes, somebody saying, well, you're twisting my words. Essentially, that's what he's saying. They take God's word, and instead of giving them their normal sense, they twist them to say something that they want them to say. He says they distort as they do the other scriptures, and then he adds, to their own destruction. Well, the word predestined as it's introduced here, I think is really clear in the context. And I fact that when you read the beginning of the chapter and you come to the end of the chapter, I think the point that Paul's making is very clear. But it's in that middle that suddenly people begin to change its meaning. In fact, statements like we just read in verse 18 that said, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens those whom he wants to harden. Or in 21 where he says, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use? And what really became, has become the conclusion of some is that basically that God has predetermined who is going to be saved, and who is going to be lost. In other words, God has already determined in advance who gets to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell even before that person was conceived within their mother's womb. And therefore, your eternal destiny is not in your hands at all. You don't choose by faith to believe that's already preordained and you're basically locked and loaded and your destiny is already fixed. Now, personally, I think that's nonsense. Based upon what we understand as the first and essential rule of biblical interpretation, which simply says this, if the plain text makes perfect sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. And what we have here is that something that, the way that predestination is often presented by those who believe in this way is really nonsense because it makes no sense at all. In other words, if everything was actually predestined to that degree, why would we bother being here this morning? Why would we bother reading the Bible? Why would we bother doing anything? Because if we have no control over these things, we just wait around and see what happens. We have no control over it. It's like watching a movie. You have no control over how the movie ends. It's just going to go from beginning to end. In fact, when you look at Scripture, you begin to find lots of things that would make you question that. For example, when he says in places like Acts 10.34 or Colossians 3.25, he says, with God there is no favoritism. In other words, there's this equanimity about God that he looks at all people the same. 
He doesn't see some as, as being saved and unsaved it's just simply because they had the wrong genetic code. But in essence, he has the same feeling for every individual. In fact, in John 3, 16, that's a fairly familiar passage where he says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, the simple and obvious reason is that he's talking about everybody, whoever believes. And yet sometimes people who believe that you're predestined will simply say, whoever is part of the elect and believes will be saved. Essentially, they put a parenthetical phrase in there to make the passage say what they want to say, which to me sounds a lot like adding to Scripture. You're actually inserting something that isn't plainly stated. In fact, another one would be 2 Peter 3.9, where it says that God is long-suffering. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I had a guy say to me, well, he's saying he doesn't want any of the elect to perish. That's who he's talking about. And I said, where does it say elect? Well, it's, it's understood. I said, no, it's inserted by you because the text doesn't say that. It says, actually, it's simple, obvious reading is that God loves people. And he wants everyone to be saved and he doesn't want anybody to be lost. But even how Paul begins the chapter kind of goes against that whole notion. Because listen to what Paul says. I have great sorrow. The word great sorrow literally could be translated bitter grief. Not just grief, but deep, bitter grief. He says, an unceasing or literally continual anguish in my heart. Paul couldn't have crafted more a more powerful expression of pain that he feels. Over what? I feel this for, he says, for I could wish that myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now here's my point. If, men, if men's fate is already predestined to either go to heaven or go to hell, what would be there to anguish over? Why would anybody even care? What matter does it make? In other words, if your fate is sealed, why would he be anguishing over the fact that they're rejecting Christ? In fact, when you get into chapter 10, in the very first verse, he starts off by saying something very similar. He says, my heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. So here he's saying, I'm praying that they'll be saved, but why even pray? Because if it's predetermined, you have no control over it anyway. You see, if you take it at its obvious, simple sense, which I believe the way it's meant to be read, then the idea that people's eternal salvation is, is predetermined or their eternal condemnation is predetermined makes absolutely no sense and becomes, to me, again, the worst kind of nonsense. But the whole reason that Paul is writing this is because it does matter. And it matters for a few different reasons. First of all, it matters because the Jews have been given by God the greatest opportunity to know and to respond in faith to God than any other people in the history of the world. That what the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament is they were given a special relationship with God that was not available to any other people on the planet. In fact, that's what Paul said. He said they were given the adoptions of sons. In other words, God refers to Israel as being his son. He says they've, seen, they've been able to witness a divine glory. They've, they've had the covenants. In fact, there's seven different covenants that we find in the Old Testament that God entered into with Israel. They had the law, the Mosaic law that was given to them. They had the temple worship. They had the promises that God gave to them through the prophets. They had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those who went before. They had, and he says, but and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. So they had the promise of the Messiah to come that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who he goes on to say, who is God over all. So that even Moses makes comment about this and back in Deuteronomy in the fourth chapter when he says, what other nation is so great as to have their God so near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? 
In other words, there's no other country or nation of people on the planet who God listens to and responds to their prayers more quickly and more readily and more completely than he did with Israel. And repeatedly we find in the scriptures he calls them his chosen people. He calls them the apple of his eye. In fact, six times he says, out of all the nations, they are my treasured possession. In other words, God's simply saying that when I think about humanity, the place where I begin to work and to radiate out is with Israel. He tells us in Deuteronomy that his plan from the beginning was to reveal himself so wonderfully and powerfully through the Jewish people that they would be literally a witness to other nations and other nations would want to know their God because there was such great grace upon them as a people. What a special position. What an honored place that they had in the plan of God. And so it mattered. But what mattered secondly, even more significantly, was because they were rejecting the opportunity that had been given them. That rather than embracing this hope when Christ came, they were rejecting Christ. And the reason is so tragic. Because he said in verses nine, in verse 31, he says, because they were pursuing a righteousness not by faith, but by their own works. Again, in chapter 10, verse 3, he says, they sought to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. In other words, they had become very religious, but they, were, had, they weren't righteous, because only God can make us righteous. Nothing we do can ever produce righteousness. Now, it's an interesting dynamic because it's not an unusual dynamic. And in fact, I would say that even within Christianity and, and, and the church, we see the same kind of dynamic happening. A, a, a situation where people are given such an exceptional opportunity, and yet they let the opportunity slip right through their grasp. In fact, one of the things that I've had this conversation last night with somebody who was you know, a Christian father who was basically complaining to me about his kids who are becoming adults and they're making some really, really unhealthy choices and he's frustrated with them because he's telling me, you know, they, they grew up in the church, they said the sinner's prayer, they did all this kind of stuff and yet they're not acting like Christians at all. And I posed a question to him. I said, is it possible that what you really accomplished was you Christianized your kids, but they were never converted? Because here's how it happens generationally. The first generation, people like myself, we have an encounter with God. In other words, I did not have a Christian background and I found Christ through the gospel being presented to me. I believed in it, and my life was changed. I was transformed. I mean, my life took a totally different trajectory that I had never imagined. Because the Spirit of God was now living inside of me. His Word became powerful. No one even had to tell me to read the Bible. I just started reading it because it was the Word of life to me. And it was life-changing. And I found very quickly that not only could God's Word be trusted and lived by and bring great benefit, but I also knew that when I prayed, there was power and God answered prayers and he did miracles so that for me, this was this exciting things. And then my wife and I began to have babies. And as our kids grew up, we wanted them to be Christians. And so we, you know, began to teach them the Ten Commandments. We teach them the Lord's Prayer. We take them to Sunday school. We have our family devotional time as much as you can keep a... Uh, Four kids, it's like playing whack-a-mole, but nonetheless, you know, you try to have these family devotionals and all this kind of stuff, and you really want them to grow up. You put them in Christian schools. You do all that kind of stuff. And one of the things we discovered with all of our kids was they had to come to faith all on their own, in their own time, in their own way. I remember my youngest son, Brian, when he was 13, <laughs> he, uh, my wife, for reasons that only God knows, made the comment to him that saying, you know, what the Bible says that some will come to him in the last days and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you and that for you? And Jesus will look at them and say, but I never knew you. And he said, all of a sudden it struck me. 
I've been assuming that I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven because my dad's a pastor and my mom's a Christian, so we're a Christian now, therefore I'm saved. And suddenly he intuitively understood that he needed to commit his life to Jesus. And this 13-year-old kid got down and said, Jesus, forgive me for my sins and come into my heart. He had this crisis of conversion. He realized, I have to make that commitment for me because God doesn't have any grandkids. But here's what's happened, and this is what's damaged the church historically. First generation gets saved, excited, living for Jesus, serving the Lord. They're all out and on fire. They begin to have a family. Their kids grow up in the church. But for the kids, church is cultural. It's what you do. And so they may not even know Jesus, but they know how everything, they know the songs, they know the liturgy, they know the way the game is played, they do all the things that they're supposed to do, and they live in church, and they go to church because going to church is a thing that you do. That's what we do. In this family, we go to church. They aren't able to give a reason, a compelling reason for their faith. And then they have a family, and their kids come along, and their kids go, so why do we go to church? And the parents go, because that's what we do. But why? Because that's what we do. And the kids go, that's fine for you, but it's not for me. And they turn away from the faith. You see, it's the thing that I find with Christian parents struggling. They're saying, well, gee, you know, I, I raised my kids in the church. We did all the right things. And after they graduated from high school, they went off to college and they lost their faith. My question for them is, are you sure they ever had it? Are you sure they ever knew Jesus? What they did know was the church dog and pony show, but did they know Jesus? That's why it's really interesting to me when, when God began to open the doors for us to reach a lot of the young people in our, our area. And I mean, a lot of these kids were, were at-risk kids. And they started coming in. I mean, they were cutting, they were tattooed, they were dealing with drugs, alcohol, a lot, of, a lot of homelessness, a lot of issues. I mean, these kids, you know, a lot of suicide and things of that nature. And it was amazing to me because many of the Christian parents in our church began to complain. In fact, I had some people come to me and say, well, we should have two youth groups, one for the good kids and one for the bad kids. I was stunned because the whole point was they saying, well, our kids are good kids. And what was sad to me was I knew enough about their kids to know this. Your kids are doing the same stuff, but they just know how to play the game. They know how to play the game. And what we end up doing, I don't mean to be harsh on you here, but we end up raising hypocrites, kids who know how to play the game, but don't know Jesus. And I started seeing what God started doing with a lot of these kids. These kids, man, they're coming out of hard situations, and yet they're encountering Jesus. And just like I did when I encountered Jesus, suddenly they want to read the Bible. They're the ones who are signing up for discipleship groups. They're the ones who want, are telling their friends, hey, you got to come to this thing, man, because this is really great, and it's changing my life. And they're the next generation of young people who are going to rock the world because they're on fire, because they have lived in the darkness, they've experienced the power of the light, their life has experienced that powerful transformation. And what has been the bane of Christianity throughout its entire history has been the second and third generation who has been Christianized but hasn't been converted. And that's, that's the tragedy. I know for my wife and I, we never assumed that our kids knew Jesus. We never assumed that because of our own experience. And we prayed that one day they would meet Jesus. And we told them, you know, there's only one thing that's important in life, and we only have one career goal for you, and that's to be born again, and that you'd know Jesus. That's all we care about. You know, you can do whatever you want, but if you don't find Jesus, you lose everything, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no life outside of him. And somehow that stuck with them. But every one of them had to, in their own course of time, come to a moment of crisis where their darkness of their own sin so overwhelmed their soul that they found themselves humbling themselves before God and saying, Jesus, forgive me my sins and come into my heart. That's the kind of dynamic that Paul is wrestling with as he's speaking to the Jews. He says, I know you know all of this. I mean, when you think about the Jew of that day, 
In fact, it's true in many Orthodox circles even today. It was not uncommon for a five-year-old to be able to recite the entire book of Psalms from memory. It was not uncommon for many adult males to be able to recite the entire Old Testament from memory. Because what they did is they read it and they studied it and they learned it and they became authorities in it. They knew everything and yet, yet Jesus would say to them in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because in them, in the knowledge of them, you think you have eternal life. But he says, what you don't see is they're the ones that testify of me. So it's kind of like getting a degree in geography. So you know everything about every map, but you never use the map to go anyplace. You never take a trip. You just spend all of your time reading about what's going on in the world and the geography of different places. And you're an expert in maps, but you have no experience with the rest of the world. Let me tell you, you can study a map of India and know every single province and city and ter ter uh, territory and train differences and all that kind of stuff. You can know about the climate, the food, everything, but there's nothing that will prepare you for flying into a city like Mumbai and New Delhi because you start smelling it the moment that plane descends under 10,000 feet. And there will nothing prepared for you when you begin to encounter the depth of poverty and disease and malnutrition that exists in that world. I mean, there's nothing that prepares you. You don't see it with the same set of eyes. Well, let me tell you the same thing was true for the Jews in terms of God. They knew everything they could know about God, everything that God had revealed. He, he, he said, I have revealed these things that you might know them, but they didn't know God. And so... They, to them, he was Mr. God. But to Paul, he said, he's Father. And there's a huge difference in terms of relationship. And so Paul is saying to him, this is incredible that you have all this opportunity, but what are you doing with the opportunity? You're wasting it. You're wasting it. I'll tell you something about when people get into my chronological uh, uh, area of life. When you get to my age, uh, one of the things you really can sense is someone who is missing out on opportunities. When you're young, you know, you want to have a lot of fun, you want to engage in a lot of things and enjoy life and so forth, and I don't think there's anything wrong particularly with that, but a lot of times you can become so caught up in what you're doing that you miss out on these major opportunities. I think, you know, really wild and crazy things like reading a book, you know, really crazy stuff, you know. Uh, you, you know, it, it, video games can be entertaining, but have you ever sat down and just actually read a book? Ah, the theater of the mind is so much more entertaining than even the best video game. And that's what Paul said, this matters. It's not enough just to have the information. What is the information accomplishing in your life? Now, Admittedly, as you read chapter 9, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. I mean, when the first few verses are pretty clear, the last few verses are very clear, and that really sets the context, and you need to interpret the rest by what you get there. But what do we get in that middle? Well, he's, keep in mind that Paul is responding to some very specific criticisms, particularly by the Jews, about the gospel message. Because they're arguing, if the gospel message that you're preaching, preaching Paul, is true, then he said, they said, basically, God's word has failed. God hasn't kept his word. Because he apparently hadn't kept his promises to Israel. He told us if, that we were his chosen people, and now you're telling us we're no longer his chosen people? And that would mean that, he said in verse 14, that God is unjust. God isn't fair. And if God isn't fair, in verse 19, he adds, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard anybody using those kind of arguments today about God? Well, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. It's just, I mean, and, and besides, if God didn't want me to behave this way, he should have made me different. It's not my fault. God just made me with, you know, fingers that go there on the internet. I can't help that. It's their fault. 
I mean, there's, it's amazing how that the, the, the mind can rationalize behavior. In fact, when Paul says in chapter 2 that every man is a liar, I never realized how literally true that was until I watched a TED Talk last night. And on this TED Talk, he was talking about why do children lie? Why do they lie? Have you ever noticed, if you've got kids, you never have to train them to lie. They come by it quite naturally. At least that was true of my kids. <laughs> they started lying early on. I remember catching my, my son Britt on four years old. He's up on the kitchen counter. The cookie jar lid is off. He's got chocolate all over his face. His cheeks are sticking out like a chipmunk. And I just asked the question, did you get into the cookies? And with a straight face, he looked at me and said, no. I mean, you know, my problem is I find that so funny that I couldn't really discipline him. <laughs> it was too, you know, the entertainment value was incredible. But when, when Brian was three years old and he cooked, kicks a hole in the door because he's mad at his brother, and I ask him, how did that hole get in the door? He said, Jimmy did it. I said, who's Jimmy? You can't see him. He's invisible. <laughs> and I thought, this little stinker, man, he's lying, and he hasn't even had a chance to study me doing it. Well, what we know now is research has found that all children start lying at the age of two. And 50% of the time, they're lying to you. It's pretty scary. And it gets worse. By the age of four, 80% of the time, they're lying. And it doesn't improve with age. It just goes up. The longer you live, the more adept you become at lying. And I started thinking about that. Because I thought, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those people. I never lie. And then my wife says, so do these jeans make my book butt look fat? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it's like, hey, babe, they look great. You know, my wife calls me and said, did you get all the garbage ready? Because they're going to come and pick it up today. Hey, honey, yeah, got it hang up, run around and gather it all together and take it outside and pretend like I had done it before, but I hadn't because I knew I'd get in trouble if I missed it. <laughs> what have I just done? Well, nobody's hurt. Well, really? You just lied. And we do that all the time. I, I would say, well, I didn't tell them the whole truth because it's just too much trouble. It's just it's such a pain to explain everything. So I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why are you bringing this back? Oh, I just don't need it. Well, is there anything wrong with it? As far as you know, no. But you see, the problem is that sometimes we just kind of, we want to take shortcuts in life because it's easier not to do that. In fact, I was just thinking about when I was going to Russia, I had, had they, uh, they'd given me an extra suitcase to take along that I checked in. Uh, just a <laughs> hint here, you know, when you're going to Russia, you do it all carry on, don't check in. Um, you may never see it again. Uh, but here I go, and I, I have this, it's all the supplies for the, for the, uh, for the VBS that they were doing at this conference. And, and uh, I meant to open it up and look at it because that's what you're supposed to do before you check it because they ask you the question, did you pack this? Do you know what's in here? And so, you know, I mean, being truthful, I said, yep. <laughs> when I hadn't even opened it up. But I knew who packed it, so I knew it was okay, so it's not really required. And I mean, I wasn't being totally dishonest. I wasn't just being, I mean, I was just being efficient. I didn't want to say, well, I actually have no idea what's in that suitcase, because I knew what that would lead to. You know, next thing I know, they're making me take my underwear off. You know, it's just, I just thought, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, it's fine. And then it gets left in, in Paris, and I have to go back the next night to pick it up. And when I pick it up, they say, what's in it? And I said, uh, I think like children's books and stuff like that. We'll open it up. So I open it up. There's no books in there. <laughs> they said, I thought you said there's books in there. Well, you know, kind of, these are kind of technically books. They're kind of like little warp. And I'm trying to talk myself out of this hole, you know. Let me not tell you, let me in a little hitch. Your lies will find out. Now, it didn't, it didn't really create any problems for me other than the fact that I had to pay a $65 fine and wait four and a half hours at the airport before they give me my passport back. 
I'm just saying. Now, it wasn't a bribe. They assured me I wasn't paying a bribe. But <laughs> you know, and I'm comfortable sharing that with you because I know you do the same kind of stinking stuff. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but it wasn't like I thought, you know, I'm... I'm going to leave that closed and not know anything because I just want to see how good a liar I can be. What I discovered is I'm not a very good one. But it's like, it's just a little thing. It's just a convenience. Well, the problem is that we find this way of, of, of trying to negotiate our way through life and we sit back and say, well, how can God judge me after all? Because I haven't done anything wrong. And God says, well, for starters, you're a stinking liar. And you lie a lot. Statistically, 80% of the time. And I think about this, sometimes I, I'll be telling, I, I was speaking at a, a friend's church one time, and, and I was telling about a story about something that happened to us on a mission trip. And, and afterwards, I mean, people are laughing, we're having a good time. And if people laugh, it's always good, right? And afterwards, I said to him, I said, hey, uh, I, I retold that story correctly, didn't I? And he goes, no, but I liked your version better. <laughs> well, somehow in my mind, it became more interesting the longer I told it. And you begin to realize that you can embellish, you can exaggerate, you can add a little hyperbole. But the point is that God doesn't. He's absolutely true he never says what he doesn't mean. He means exactly what he says. And so when Paul responds to them, that he's reminding them, saying, you have to understand that your salvation is based upon one thing and one thing alone, and that's by your faith in Jesus Christ. Your works have no bearing on your salvation. Your works have no bearing upon your salvation. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how good you've been. You are saved by one thing alone, and that's faith. And so he begins with their forefathers, their patriarchs, and he says, from the very beginning, this was the basis of man's relationship with God. Salvation has never been passed on or based upon your heredity. He says in verse 8, it's not the natural children who are God's children. It is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. What is he saying? He starts off by saying, well, look at Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham did not become righteous because of his dad. We're told his dad was an idolater. And then Abraham has a son. And his son is Isaac, and it's interesting, his oldest son is Ishmael, but God puts the blessing upon Isaac. Why? Not because he was the rightful heir, but because God wanted a child of grace, not a child of your works. And he chose Jacob, one of Isaac's sons, who was the younger instead of, and rejected Esau, the older, because Jacob wanted it more than Esau wanted it. In fact, we may look at Jacob and say, well, he was kind of a, a twisted, corrupt, dishonest guy. His very name means the deceiver and the trickster, and that becomes the pattern of much of his life. And yet God chose to bless him simply because he wanted it more than his older brother. He may have had his issues, but nonetheless, he desired the blessing of God. It was his faith in the promises of God. And even when we talk about Pharaoh, before he ever says in Exodus that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he starts off by saying, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And after he hardens his heart, God says, okay, so you're not going to listen to me, then I'm going to start hardening. I'm going to push you to the extreme that I might glorify myself in your behalf or through you because you refuse to humble yourself in front of me. And then he turns from the patriarchs, he turns to the prophets, and he says, what do the prophets say? Uh, Hosea says, I will call them my people who are not my people, non-Jews. He says, I will turn to the Gentiles, and they will believe in me in faith. And if they believe me, they become sons of Abraham, even though they have no DNA from the house of Israel. 
And finally, he turns to Israel to Isaiah, and he says, and in Isaiah, he said, only a remnant will remain of Israel because he said the rest of them become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What separated them from the rest was their faith in the promises of God, not their heredity. Which really brings me really to the whole point of what Paul is making here. He's trying to convince him. He says, salvation is not a consequence of heredity. It's not a consequence of heritage. It's not a concept of, of any homage that you've rendered. It's certainly not the consequence of human effort. Salvation is based solely on faith in the promises which he has made to us. And that's why later on in chapter 10, he, he tells us very clearly in verses 12 and 13, he says, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. To the Jew, this was an outrageous statement because their entire identity was based upon the idea that they were God's chosen people. They were the apple of his eye. They were his treasure possession. That made them special and that made the Gentiles unspecial at best. And suddenly God says, but no, there's no difference. The fact that I blessed you and gave you this opportunity doesn't mean that you're worth more to me than they are worth. In fact, you were supposed to be living in such a way that they would want to know me the way I wanted you to know me too. He says, there's no difference, but he goes on and says, the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord. Now, I know some of you are saying, saying, well, isn't this kind of remedial stuff? I mean, haven't you been kind of hitting on this for the last eight chapters? Now it's nine chapters? Yes, but that's the whole point. We lose sight of this simple truth so easily. There is something within our human nature that so desperately wants to find value in our humanity that would make us valuable to God. We want something inside of us that we can stand in front of God and say, God, of course you're going to love me because, and that's the way the world that we live in. The world that we live in is always based upon I love you because, or I don't love you because, but it's never I love you in spite of all of that. But God says, you have to understand that I love you in spite of everything. And your basis of going to heaven has nothing to do with what you've done or what you didn't do. You don't earn it. You don't qualify for it. You don't inherit it. It isn't passed on. It's something that is given to you because you come in the desperation of your own realization that I am a sinner and that I have no right to heaven. And God, I just ask that you'd be merciful to me. And so when he says he will have mercy on who he have mercy, you know who God will have mercy on? The person, the man or woman who comes and said, God, have mercy on me. And God says, I'll have mercy on you. Everyone who asks, I will show you that grace. I will show you that mercy. And yet he says, ironically, he goes on to say that as obvious as this should have been to them, it became a stumbling block to them. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, he writes. As it is written, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. One last illustration. Um, <clears throat> in Russia, they don't have the same kind of building codes and requirements that we do here in the States. And so... It's common when you'll see the stairs in a building that, um, well, here in the States, every step has to be exactly 10 inches, you know, every single one. So you have to build the building so that it's always exactly 10 inches. They don't, they don't really kind of follow that too much. So I mean, there was one place where I was at, the first step was two inches, and then the top step was four inches. So they just kind of made up for the shortfall <laughs> on the ends. And I kept on having the same problem. Every time I would stop, start up the stairs, I would trip <laughs> over the short step. Every time. I mean, I'm doing this multiple times a day, and I'm tripping over it over and over again. And I get to the top, and I go to step, and I'd overstep because the step was smaller. You know, and, and I've noticed these, my Russian friends are just looking at me and saying, yeah, it's, the years are catching up with him. But 
But that's the problem. Self-righteousness is a constant stumbling stone to us. There's this thing in us that's always not looking where we're stepping. <laughs> and as a consequence, we, we get caught up in our own sufficiency, our own qualifications, our own talent, our own skill, our own ability, our own stunning good looks or whatever thing that you mistakenly are assigning your good graces to. And we lose sight of what Paul simply said to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. Here's Paul. He doesn't say, I am because of my extensive rabbinical training. I am because of all of my fastings and praying. I am because of all the things I've done, the churches I've planted, and the people that I've influenced. He doesn't assign any of that to himself. He says, I am what I am because God was gracious to me. Now, how does that practically make a difference in your life? Well, a gentleman was talking to me after the first service. He's talking about the, he has an a interesting career. And he says that he's being pushed forward by his employers to grow in this thing. And it's really a great opportunity. But he says, I am so out of my depth he says, I mean, it's, it's so over my head, my abilities intellectually and skill-wise and everything like that. And he says, I, I just really am struggling with that. And what I took him back to is I said, you know, why are you, why do you have this job? You didn't earn it. God in his grace put you in that job. And I said, what you need to do when you have this project and you're looking and going, I don't know how to do this. You need to say, Lord, I need your grace. Remember what grace is? Grace is God's greatness channeled through your basic incompetence for his glory. God, I, this is, I'm not qualified to do this. It's like you think God's looking at it going, oops, sorry, I overlooked that fact. Uh, I'm going to place you someplace else where you, know, you can't flub it up. No, I put you here because I want you to say, I am not competent. I need your grace. And God makes you competent. His greatness begins to flow through you, and you find yourself being able to do what he's called you to do because he wants to glorify himself through your basic incompetence. I never felt so liberated in my life until I realized that truth that I used to get diarrhea and nauseous coming into this pulpit when I thought that I had to be competent. And I realized all I've got to do is say, God, I need grace. Because <laughs> if, if you don't show up, this is going to be a long day for everyone. <laughs> but if you do show up, you can change lives. You can do miracles. It's all about grace. A grace that flows into us and through us when we simply come in the humility of faith and saying, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your ability. And God says, I will give you the grace to do that. And it all works out. It all works out. When I was leaving passport control in Russia, it's always a little tense for me. I've had some encounters. And the guy's going through my thing, and he keeps on going through this thing, and he's looking at the computer, and he's going through the thing, and I'm thinking, this is taking way too long. And he goes over, and he looks the phone and starts dialing. And he hangs it up and pushes the button. And he kept on trying to call somebody, and kept on trying to, and eventually he just goes, oh, hangs it up, go ahead, go. I don't know what that was about. I don't want to find out. But they keep careful records. And I just thought, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. Who is competent for such things? Not you and me. But God loves to see, to move through your incompetence for his glory. I don't know how to be a good husband or a good father or a good grandfather or a good pastor. I don't, I don't know how to do any of those things. None of that's native to me. 
But when you realize that, God, you put a challenge in front of me that's so much bigger than I am. God, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And he gives it. We need grace to be a forgiving people. We need grace not to be judgmental. We need grace not to be angry or to be hateful or malicious or vengeful or bitter. We need grace. God, I don't know how to control bitterness. When somebody does something that, that, that wounds you deeply, how do you let go of that? And so, you know, we can sit, <laughs> you can stay in therapy for 200 years and still not figure out how to let go of bitterness. But when you say, God, I know I'm not supposed to be bitter, but forgive me. Free me from this. God touches us by his spirit and the bitterness leaves. The resentment leaves. You know, it's, it's the power of God. We're not competent, but God will give us that grace. Look at the grace he just gave you to spend an extra 11 minutes and 15 seconds with me. <laughs> Father God, I pray that you would help us to hear these things in a way that would be, make a difference in our life. That these good people don't need to sit and listen to some windbag whine on and on about something he barely understands himself. But God, your Holy Spirit has the power to so touch us in those very places where we desperately need to be touched by your grace. That God, I, I just ask God that you would just move in these men and women's lives and bring that transformational healing, freeing power that we would stop feeling like we have to prove that we're competent and we can just be people who are just objects of your grace. We're the ultimate grace case. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. We're going to continue on as we always do for a few more minutes to just let God speak into our lives a little bit. It's just really kind of letting, letting your soul just kind of sit here and meditate upon what God may has said to you personally, because I have no idea what that might be. He has this amazing power to individualize a message or a reading or anything to each of us so that we can encounter God in just the particular way that we need to do so. I invite you, though, in this time just to seek God, just to Turn your heart to him. As we sing the songs, let them be not songs that you sing, but prayers that you offer to God. Concentrate on the words and think about what's being said. I invite you to come up and partake of the elements of communion if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to become one by simply asking Jesus into your heart. You may have been coming to church your entire life. You may be 80 years old and you've never given your life to Jesus. Now is the time, especially if you're 80. Now is really the time. <laughs> because none of your religious knowledge will ever help you. The power of the Spirit is the only thing that can change us, can save us, can transform us, and set us free. So I encourage you to respond to God.